0: There, beginning in verse 7, it says, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then this is the psalm we read earlier, Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for forty years. Therefore, I was provoked to that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, Lord, we want, as we just sang, that you would speak, that you would help us to hear your voice, and that as we hear, we would respond. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In 1678, John Bunyan published a book entitled Pilgrim's Progress. This allegory describes a man seeking to make it to heaven. The book immediately became successful and to this day has never gone out of printing, some saying second only in the Bible in number of copies made. Well, Bunyan's view in that book stands in stark contrast to the way many Christians view their Christian life. Many people place their confidence in making it to heaven based upon maybe a prior confession of faith, based upon a life of faithful church attendance. Moments of seeing God's presence in their life, believing in God and praying to Him, or great emotional experiences from the past. In essence, they have their confidence in what has come before or in the past. Yet for Bunyan, and his main character Pilgrim, making it to the celestial city, what he referred to as heaven, could not be assured of until you actually entered into it. Many appeared and came along with Pilgrim on the path. But then they were distracted and did not continue. So how can we know for sure that we are on the way to God's eternal rest? Can we even be sure? Or should we be always dodged by doubt? What about our friends and family who professed faith in the past, but now want nothing to do with Christ or His church? Well, through the author of Hebrews, God shows us three things we need to be faithful to the end. First in verses seven through eleven, we need to listen to the Holy Spirit speaking, and then verses twelve through fourteen, encourage and exhort other believers regularly, and then, in verses fifteen to nineteen, consider the potential for falling away. The first thing that they must do is what he says in verse seven: listen when he speaks. The author mentions this because if you look back one verse, verse six it says. And we are his household if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. He's saying they must continue in their confidence with Christ. And to illustrate this, he quoted from Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 is quite interesting, and we'll talk about it more in a little bit. But here, he uses Psalm 95 and Israel's experience of not continuing in the faith to serve as a warning us and notice verse 7 that he says he writes therefore as the holy spirit says that verb says is a present tense verb god still speaks to us today through his word Though a man wrote down these words god the holy spirit inspired what he should write thus we can refer to the word of god as god's words through men The Bible is not a collection of just what some Middle Eastern nomadic shepherds thought about God. No, the Bible is what God conveyed, what He inspired men, some of whom were desert nomads, to communicate. You often people say, "Well, if only God would speak to me, then I'd believe." Well, God has spoken to you. All you need to do is pick up His Word and read. You know, the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, are God's inspired word through humans' authors. You know Those authors didn't go into a trance and then have their hand write something down that they weren't sure what they were doing. You no, know, the Spirit filled each author, and they each wrote with their own unique culture, grammar, and style. Thus, the Bible is the word of God through men. A.W. Tozer writes, I believe that much of our religious unbelief is due to a wrong conception of and a wrong feeling for the scriptures of truth. We often think a silent God suddenly began to speak in a book. And when the book was finished, lapsed back into silence again forever. Now we read the book as the record of what God said when he was for a brief time in a speaking mood. The facts are that God is not silent, has never been silent. It is the nature of God to speak. If you would follow on to know the Lord, come at once to the Bible, to an open Bible, expecting it to speak to you. Now, many of our friends would consider this thinking to be ridiculous. They might even say that believing the Bible is the Word of God is merely based on a circular argument. What's a circular argument? Well, it's one I had with my kids several years ago. I was putting them down to bed, and I was trying to convey to them that at night I was Captain America and they didn't believe me I said well you can believe me because I'm telling you I am Captain America and I said well no you can't be Captain America and I said well then why does everyone at night call me Captain America but the problem was I was just saying I was something and we were going round and round it was a circular argument many people say well you believe the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God but that's a circle you can't prove anything that way we're not going to believe that that's a circular argument And when people point that out, that we're saying the Bible is the word of God and the Bible says it, we should respond by agreeing that it is like a circular argument. Yet there's a crucial difference between it and me claiming to be Captain America, besides the fact that I look nothing like him. The thing is, when we discuss first principles, or the starting point for how we know everything, for everything to be true and valid, everyone's argument is circular. So let's set aside the Bible for a second. Let's say you're interacting with someone who says, look, the way to understand this world is logic, reason. That's how we can understand it. So you just need to ask them, how do you know? And they'll give you a logical explanation. They're using logic to prove that logic is logical. That's the circular argument. Our friends who say, well, we can know everything through scientific study. Science is the way to know everything. How do you know? Well, then they would probably try and give you a scientific experiment to let you know they're using science to say science can be proven so when we're talking about first principles how do we know everything how do we have a grounds to build everything else off on it doesn't matter whether you're talking about the Bible or logic we're talking about science they all have to appeal to themselves and so when we're talking about ultimate sources of truth It is a circular argument no matter which one you use so the real question is which of those is the most reasonable faith they're all faith commitments which one is most reasonable and as Christians we put our faith in the Bible being God's Word not because we're so ignorant that we can't figure that out but that we know there's several reasons that we can trust this is God's Word the resurrection of Jesus should lead everyone to ponder, well, what is it that he said? If someone rose from the dead, I should consider his words. The rapid growth of the church has led many people to come to see the truth of Christianity. The manner, the message of Jesus, the character of God, fulfilled prophecies that were given in the Old Testament and then came to truth. Many of those things have compelled people to go, this is true. And I'm going to build my life upon it. In this case, the author refers to the Holy Spirit speaking in Psalm 95, verses 7-11. through 11. And Psalm 95 is interesting. I don't know how, what songs you sang growing up, growing up, but often we sang a song, Oh, let us come, worship and bow down, let us kneel before the Lord our God our Maker. Well, that comes from Psalm 95. It starts with worship. And it's giving all these things about praising God. And then it seems to abruptly shift to all of a sudden saying, watch out, if you don't continue, you're going to be punished. Why did the author make this sudden switch from let's worship God to I'm going to warn you the danger of grumbling and hardening your hearts against God? Well, Israel had provoked God's anger by constantly turning from him and forgetting his works. You know, that is the author's warning, and we'll see in a second why he ties these together. Israel is like we are today. It's a, what have you done for me lately? Well, yes, you did all those things in the past, but what about today? What have you done for me? And if Israel had only reflected on God's deliverance in the past, bringing them out of Egypt, getting them through the Red Sea, they would know they could trust God. They don't need to grumble about their lack of water. It's not as though God got them into the wilderness. Out of Egypt, out of slavery, and then go, oh man, I knew there was something in my plan, I forgot. Water. Well, sorry, Israel, I'm going to go get another people. You know, they can trust God. You see, the issue is that their grumbling, like all grumbling, attacked, maligned, and challenged God. Their words and actions implicitly declared, God, you don't love us. And so God responded to their grumbling by swearing in his wrath that they would not enter the promised land. Now that may seem a little harsh at first, but consider what the Holy Spirit is saying. You know, the reason it switches from this call to worship to then grumbling is because what we grumble about actually shows what we worship. You know, we think of worship as what we did before the sermon. Okay, let's go worship, then we'll hear a sermon, and then we'll sing a song. Well, worship from a biblical standpoint is all of life, or it can be all of life. You worship whatever you think, I need this to be completely fulfilled, to be happy. And the thing is, there's not just one thing, there's multiple things that we think, I have to have this, or life's not the way it should be. So we think we should be having complete enjoyment, so we grumble when we don't have the car or the device or the toy because my pleasure is supreme we grumble about bad cell phone service because i deserve better and life isn't meaningful if i can't interact we grumble about the weather because our desires are most valuable now we don't consciously say this but our grumbling is revealing what we think we have to have to be content have to have to be fulfilled And so that is calling God's character into question. They are saying, God, you are a liar. It's easy to focus on all that we don't have, but yet when those temptations to grumble come, which we all have, we need to focus on the good things God has given us. Let's consider that horrible cell phone service. You could rejoice that you have a cell phone in the first place. That we live in a day and age where you can be sitting in a car driving 75 miles per hour, talking to someone on the other side of the globe, driving 75 miles per hour, and most of the time, hear them perfectly. I mean, that thought would have been completely unimaginable for 99% of the world that's ever lived. We can, in the car, watch movies on our phones. We can do all these things and, oh, I got a bad signal. Ah. Consider god's goodness to even let us have that opportunity or why were we born with strong brains and other people born with mental deficiencies why can we use our hands why can we breathe well, i can even pick it up and hold it and i understand what it's doing we'll give thanks to god for that focus on all the things god has done rather than on the one thing you're not getting at that time well, part of that trust, part of listening to God is listening when the Spirit speaks through His Word. You know, it's easy to show up every week, but are you listening to the Spirit speaking? You know, it's easy to show up, and yet in some areas, harden your heart. Yes, I want to serve you, God, but not there. That area is mine. And the Spirit warns us that we need to soften our hearts, submit to his word. Another way God warns us and encourages us though is through other believers and that's what we see through verses 12 through 14. It reads, take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Notice there he didn't say but listen you people who aren't Christians or are on the fence. He's talking to them as believers and warning them this could happen. These verses are clear that the danger of falling away did not end when Jesus came. And they, and we, must watch out that we don't fall away. And the context shows falling away means going from trusting and obeying God to trusting and obeying something else, to grumbling and complaining. Falling away could be a quick process, or it could be like weeds, that seem to grow slowly and imperceptibly until they choke out faith in God. And the author describes this beginning with an evil, unbelieving heart. You know, these people believed that Jesus was superior to all things. that's what Hebrews is about. But in his heart, he does not believe what is said. Now notice this lack of faith being talked about here is not lack of faith that God exists. But rather, it's a lack of faith that God is good. It's a lack of faith that God cares for us. You know, the Israelites, in their complaint in the wilderness, were not complaining that God didn't exist. They're complaining that God didn't provide what they think they needed. You know, James 2.19 tells us, even the demons believe God exists. So if this is not an unbelief in God's existence, what is this unbelief? Well, it's what we've said. It's the unbelief that with our lives says, God, you're not good. God, what you're giving me is not right. You know, we can say all we want with our lips that, God, you're good, you're in control. But then our grumbling and complaining calls into question his goodness and his sovereignty. We can say with our lips, God, you are all I need. And yet our depression over being various things in our life can reveal that our heart does not believe that you see true faith sees all other options of joy and says none of them compares to god the problem is we think we do need more well yes we need you god plus plus. and yet god has given us himself and that's all we need the gifts of earth will come and go but we will never lose god to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So we have the greatest gift. Well notice at the end of verse 12, the failure to have this type of faith leads to falling away from God. And we have a hard time hearing this because we have emphasized a true doctrine beyond its intention. And the true doctrine is that you can't lose your salvation. That once you're saved, you're always saved. That is true. 1 John 5.13 says, The letter was written so that you may know that you have eternal life. We can and should have confidence that we are truly saved. You see, our salvation was why? Well, it's through grace, through faith, through what Jesus did. And since my salvation is not based on me, then my sin is not going to make me lose my salvation. Thus, we don't need to live in fear. Am I going to lead a good life most of the time? And then at the end, I'm going to commit one of those mortal sins and then I'm out. No, we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. We're not saved by our works. And so our works won't remove our salvation. However, while it is true that once saved, always saved. We should add if saved. Along with assurance of salvation, the New Testament also warns of false professions of faith. Thus, while First John writes to say that, I write these things that you may know you have eternal life, he also says in chapter 2, verse 19, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are they all are not of us. So there are these people who look like Christians, but they left. They didn't continue to the end. So John was saying that makes it evident they weren't actually believers. Thus, there are exhortations, such as 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? And then he adds, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. So what are the tests? How do we know if we're genuinely saved? Well, First John lays out three tests. Doctrinal. Do you believe the truth about Jesus? Do you believe He's the Son of God who came in the flesh, who died for your sins and rose again? Moral. Do you seek to live a righteous life, and when you sin, do you confess and turn back? Relational. Do you love the brothers? Now, that's not going to be perfect, but that is, is there fruit of them? Therefore, it is true, once saved, always saved, if saved. Well, back here in Hebrews 3, we should pay attention when he writes, Take care, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, we have to be careful because it's easy, I've done this myself, listening to a sermon and think, oh, if only Tony were here. I tried to pick someone, name we didn't know. If only... Tony, we're here. He needs to hear this sermon. Well, we need to hear this sermon. Or to make it more specific, I need to hear this sermon. It doesn't say, today, take care, brothers, if those other people. But in each one of us, we need to take heed. We need to hear heed verses like this, or 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands, take heed, lest he fall we should hear this and verse 13 gives our response but exhort one another every day now notice he didn't say but pastors exhort one another every day all of us are called to exhort one another loving other christians is a job for all christians Now, yes, there are definitely times where Keith and I would love for you to say, hey, can you help us as we seek to encourage this brother or sister? Yes, we want to do that. and That is a role we have. But God has given each one of you the charge to love other Christians. Every follower of Christ is called to minister to other Christians. As well, notice this is not just a Sunday morning affair because we're called to do this every day. He makes this clear the continual nature of, by saying they can stop when it is no longer called today when is it no longer today well at eleven 59, 59 it'll be today and then we'll switch over to tomorrow but then it'll be today so he's saying basically all the time now that doesn't mean 24 7 yes we must eat sleep you don't need to be like oh no i got to call someone today say a bible verse whoo okay good The point is that a regular pattern of our life is that we're trying to encourage, love one another. You know, in essence, we must continually be doing this. You know, we can't stop once someone makes the profession of faith. Oh, they're saved. They're good. All right. On to someone else. We can't we can't stop because they've been a member here for years. Oh, that person's been coming 30 years. They're good. No, we must continue to the end. We should be regularly talking to Christians about their Christian life. And notice, God is calling for us to be more involved in one another's life than just being together for a couple hours on Sunday morning. He wants all of our life to be lived for Him. Yes, being saved calls you into a personal relationship with God. But that's not where the calling ends. That should then propel you into relationships with others. To be in a close-knit community of people, of believers who are caring for each other. And to do this, our conversations have to push past the circumstances of life. You know, that's what we often talk about. How are you doing today? How are the kids? How's the weather? How's the garden going? Those are all circumstances which are good to talk about. But we need to go past the circumstances to the person. How are you doing today? How are you handling this? And if this is done in love, then this is not rude and intrusive. Rather, it's gentle probing to know that you care about them. And these verses also remind us that we should not be shocked if they say to our question, honestly, I'm not doing very well. We don't go, I wasn't expecting that. I was just hoping you'd say doing fine. We should expect that all of us have this tendency that we're going to be prone to evil, unbelieving hearts. So if they say, look, to be honest, I've been having a hard time just getting the motivation to get out of bed. We shouldn't say, really? I think I have an appointment now. It was nice to see you. We should go, yeah, sometimes I'm like that too. Or if they say, I just can't, I've been so angry. I just, I'm just yelling at people all the time. We don't go, okay, we go, yeah, we're sinners, and we love them, and we don't respond to them in judgment, but with grace. The point is that we need, not like this is a nice extra luxury, every Christian needs other Christians in their life, probing and questioning, and then also we need to be those type of Christians who are probing and questioning. And that also means we need to be honest. Now, of course, when we show up, the whatever close to 40 people here with 39 other people, you can't pour your whole heart out to everyone. That's impractical. But for some people in this room and hopefully others out of this room, when they ask, how are you? It's not, Oh, just fine. That's a, well, actually I, I haven't been doing that well lately, That there's honesty that we can share with one another. And this is important because as verse 13 says, sin deceives and hardens us. Sin comes seductively and appears so beautiful and good, but it's all a lie. And the more we indulge the lie, the more our heart will not believe the truth. Thus, we need to be hearing not just doctrinal facts. We need to hear from people, look, the meaning of life is not your looks or your relationships. We need to be reminded that obedience is more important than popularity. We need to hear again and again, yes, that is a trial. But God is good, and He has a purpose in it. So where are you on this? You know, I wonder if perhaps for some of you this whole sermon scares you, because you have opened up before, and then that person that you opened up to, they went and gossiped everything that you shared with them. And you are so hurt that you think, I'm never, never doing that again. Perhaps for some, this sermon encourages you. Maybe you think these people would hear of what I've been dealing with in private for years and they won't reject me. They won't say, I don't want anything to do with you. They'll love me still. Perhaps the sermon exhorts you. You're thinking, I need to be more open and seek to be deep in my relationships. Oh, wherever you are in this, we need to remember one main thing. It's all built on God's grace. God's grace welcome sinners who confess their sins and turn to Him. God's grace continues to welcome us as Christians who battle sin. You know, right after Hebrews 3, I had to think about this one for a while, comes Hebrews 4. One of my favorite verses is Hebrews 4.16. If you look over, it says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. It didn't say, you know, God doesn't really want you to come by when you got troubles. No, it's in the exact time of your need, whether that's sin or just life in general. He wants you to come. He begs us to come. He doesn't recoil when we draw near. He tells us to draw even closer. You know, that's the sinful, unbelieving heart. The sinful, unbelieving heart says, I can't go to God with this again. I can't confess this to others. They're going to shun me. And we need others say, No, God wants you to return again and again. And so since God by His grace draws near to help us in our sins and weaknesses, then when a friend confesses something to us, we should also draw near and not recoil. What they confess might not be what you're tempted with, but we're all tempted with various sins, and so we offer grace and kindness and love. And you might be thinking, But I have been crying out to God for mercy and grace. I am in a desperate time of need, and he doesn't seem to be helping. Well, will you accept the help he sends? You all probably have heard the illustration of the man who's in a town that begins to flood. The police come and warn him, you have to leave right now. The flood is coming, and you cannot escape. And he says, God will save me. And they leave. Hours later, the water has risen so much that a boat comes to his house and from his upstairs window, they call to him. You need to get in the boat and come. The water's going to get higher. It's going to go over your house. He says, I'm fine. God's going to save me. Hours later, he's on his roof and a helicopter comes and lowers a line and says, you need to grab the line. This is your last chance. He says, no, it's all right. God's going to save me. Not too much longer. He's in heaven and he says, God, why didn't you save me? And God replied, I sent help three times. You know, will we take the help that God gives? You know, often we think of God's help. Somehow we get into this like miraculous, unnormal, supernatural thing that I'm just going to be here and poof, I'm going to be better. Well, God's help in time of need might be the person in front of you or behind you or next to you. Those are the people that God gives us to help us. You know, God's help, His way of escape is not often some mysterious supernatural deliverance. It's those people He's already put in our life. And you might be thinking, well, it's going to kill me to open up again. But I'm hoping that this passage helps you see that the opposite is true. It might kill you not to open up again. And that might be okay, Pastor, that's an overstatement. We'll look at what he says in verses 14 to the end. Verse 14 to the end, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is our last and third point. Consider the potential for falling away. He adds in verse 14, as he did in verse 6, you will share in Christ if. There's a condition. The evidence of one's salvation is played out over a lifetime the christian life has a beginning but we must not put our confidence on that it may have been a very sincere profession of faith you may have had a season of life in which you were very active and you were doing everything but what about today says here today if you hear his voice not think back did you listen to his voice when you were back in egypt Today, if you hear his voice, we must continually press on in trusting God. And so here, he's giving this warning. We could do this. And in showing them this, he's wanting their faith to realize that it might not be genuine. And might think, well, that could never happen to me. But he uses the example of Israel. What did they experience? Deliverance from Egypt. Going through the Red Sea. Being given the manna. All these things. And I'm sure at many of those points they thought, I'll never stop trusting God. We just walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. I'm going to trust God the rest of my life. Until they were two weeks later and without water. Those were the same ones. And so the author wants us to consider that we too could fall away and the encouragement for us to avoid this is to see god's plan for faithfulness what plan well, it's what we mentioned in verses 12 to 13 of being involved in one another's lives so that we exhort encourage and stimulate stimulate one another to faith love and good deeds my friend richie goodrich has come here a couple times and he recounted once a story of a man in india a christian named sundar And once Sundar was traveling with a companion in the Himalayan mountains in a very bad snowstorm. And they came across a man who was on the side of the road sick and couldn't walk anymore. And Sundar said, we we have to stop. We have to help this man. He's not going to make it. And his companion said, I would love to, but if we try and help him, we're all going to die. I know it's harsh, but we have to go on. But Sundar couldn't go on. So his friend went on by himself and Sundar went over and practically carried the man down the mountain. Tragically, Sundar's companion died. Sundar, and the man who didn't look like he'd make it, made it to the end. Sundar said it was the warmth generated by carrying the other man that enabled him not to succumb to the cold elements. In his commitment to this other person saved his own life. You know, Sundar, though, had to risk. I could put my life in danger for this other person. But as he risked his life, it saved his own life. Likewise, befriending others, opening up, you might think, this is a risk. I don't know that I can do this. But it might be what saves your own life. In God's plan, as we love others and serve them, God uses them to also help us live faithfully for Christ. So let us heed the call, not take these warnings as though they're not legitimate, and then press in with one another in our relationships to encourage and exhort one another. So, as Pilgrim did in Pilgrim's Progress, one day we can be at the celestial city rejoicing with God together. Let's pray. Lord, I do pray. Lord, you know every... every soul in this room lord would we all make it to the celestial city lord there are many temptations there are many snares along the way would you give all of us eyes of faith would you give us encouragement from our friends and loved ones that we might walk faithfully to the end it's in your son's name we pray amen